You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this podcast episode to discuss the highlights of the 2021 American Society of Hematology annual meeting. And my understanding is that this was the 63rd annual meeting and that there were well over 3,000 abstracts and presentations and oral presentations presented. There was an enormous amount of scientific information presented. So I have to say, with that in mind, we are very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Lee Greenberger, who is the Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Lee attended the meeting, and there was a lot of information presented by LLS, and we're going to get to hear about it. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I want to ask a couple of very, very general questions about the ASH meeting this year. There are some meetings, uh, national meetings, honestly, maybe more in the past where the attendees, including myself, were there and said, oh, you know, the advancements were pretty minor this year. And there were other years that you went, wow, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. How was this meeting for you? Yeah, so I attended it virtually. I understand there was about 15,000 people at the meeting, where there's normally about over 25,000. It honestly was great because I was able to see a lot of presentations by doing it virtually. I found there were a couple of inflection points. I see it overall as we are improving. I saw a lot of improvements in therapies. I didn't see a tremendous amount of wow. There was a few of those. But I see it as a moderate improvement in advancing new therapies and getting better treatments. And thank you. Along those lines, let me just ask you directly, as you're looking back at the meeting, what were the, you know, those one or two or three or whatever it may be inflection points? Yeah. So there's no question that uh, there was a tremendous amount of presentations on chimeric antigen receptor therapy, CAR-T therapy clearly moving it earlier stage disease. There was a lot of information about that. Impressive results. Not terribly surprising that the results are impressive. How? Because even in third line or last line therapy, CAR T has performed very well. And I think that we're seeing the cytokine release syndrome and the neurotoxicity being more managed. And we're not seeing a lot of grade three toxicities, even with CAR-T or even with the biospecifics that we've learned how to manage those. But I do think that we're making major steps towards deploying CAR-T, both for myeloma and for lymphoma. I think the data with the biospecifics is maturing. And while we only have one biospecific approved, belinitumumab for leukemia, I think we're going to see that there's going to be biospecifics approved in the near future for lymphoma and even for myeloma. The data with mosinituzumab in particular in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, that was a wow. I mean, we knew that it was coming because we saw the earlier data last year 
with a smaller data set, but it's pretty clear that mosinatuzumab as a monotherapy and relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma is a powerful approach. We'll have to understand what the duration is and how to use it in combination in the future, but that data was quite remarkable. I think we're all waiting for the full picture and the FDA evaluation of the application for Siltacel, which is a BCMA CAR-T therapy that looks quite good with a really high response rate and a duration that looks outstanding. And that's in uh, highly previously treated patients. I think on the leukemia front, one of the most exciting things was the use of MLL menin inhibitors which is a completely new approach. We saw a glimpse of that, the last ASH, and now we're seeing much more data, complete response rates in the 40% range in leukemic patients. And that data looks quite promising. I think the other thing I wanted to add, which got numerous oral presentations, was the use of cell-free DNA for early detection of disease or detection of a relapse before it actually happens. There was a presentation, this is particularly from the lab of uh, Ash Elizadoc in collaboration with others, its utility in follicular lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and I'm missing another lymphoma. So for example, our early detection of mutations simply by looking at the blood or saliva in patients who will get follicular lymphoma in the future. A very powerful technique integrating that into care has not yet been done, but heading in the right direction. I want to dissect these a little bit because they were interesting for you and they're certainly interesting for me. I think they will for our audience as well. Let's take the last one first and talk about cell-free DNA. So it sounds like this may be a way to detect a disease before it will otherwise be diagnosed and or to detect a relapse. Is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. So Dr. Elisa has already published data showing that he can detect a relapse by cell-free DNA. In other words, it's simply from sampling the blood well before it's a radiologic relapse in DLBCL. He's now added that you could actually find mutations in the blood of patients who will go on to develop follicular lymphoma. And the same mutations, of course, appear in those diseases. That's quite powerful. And finally, he was able to show that detecting mutations in the blood of patients with CNS lymphoma. And of course, CNS lymphoma requires, could require a biopsy and an invasive procedure to get to sample the uh, brain incident of lymphoma. This is a simply way to determine what's going on by looking at the blood and uh, avoiding the uh, invasive biopsies. So, and this is not to play devil's advocate, but I'm listening with the, the clinician's ear of the following. I have a patient who I treated for CML, oh, it's got to be 15 or 12, well, more than 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And the long and short of it is she was on interferon. She became allergic to it. I mean, it's a long time ago. And for many years, was lost to follow-up. Comes back 10, 15 years later with a small amount of positivity for the BCR able. I have to think it was there for a very long time. So I guess my question is, what's your view to patients who have signs of molecularly relapsing disease? Is it possible that any of our patients, can they coexist with the disease with mechanisms that we don't even understand? Yes. So this is the problem with super sensitive methods for detection of disease. You know, when do you actually start to retreat? 
or even in the case of follicular lymphoma, patient doesn't have follicular lymphoma, it's an indolent disease, could be just a watch and wait situation and not do any therapy. Right. I think it's particularly useful in aggressive diseases or diseases that are hard to sample. I think in the case of more indolent diseases or where there are good therapies that to be able to control the disease, this is where cell-free DNA could actually create a quandary saying, okay, you know, I could see it coming back, but we're not going to do anything. Right. And where the patient says, well, do something and say, I don't know, come back in six months and let's follow this thing. And that could be a reasonable response for certain diseases. Right, right. I have to say, I feel one of the most interesting discussions with with patients is when in CLL, where very often we say, I don't want to do it. Me as the doctor or we as the doctors say, but we don't want to do anything about it. And patients do look at you and say, what? You know, and it becomes an interesting and very meaningful conversation to say to someone, we're going to watch it. And fortunately, frequently, people understand that pretty well. Let me even amplify that a little bit. There was a very nice presentation from uh, Dr. Vassilou's lab, who actually LLS is funding, so we know the work well, where he was able to show this phenomena called clonal hematopoiesis. This is where mutations are detected in the blood of a normal individual. The same mutations will appear in leukemia. And there's a correlation between having those mutations in a pre-leukemic state well before the leukemia actually appears. Okay, so we have no good therapies to treat a pre-leukemic patient. In fact, you just basically said, okay, I can see the mutations, and chances are you won't even convert to leukemia, so we're going to do nothing. Mm -hmm. A more exaggerated example is we are doing the same procedure in firefighters who were exposed to the 9-11 disaster, all those toxins when the buildings came down. And we can see in those firefighters, there is a, a higher incident of mutations in the blood of those firefighters. They don't have the disease yet. Do you treat those patients? Well, clearly not. Do you follow those patients more carefully? Then you do, because we know that those firefighters will develop cancers more frequently than the general population. And clearly, intercepting cancer when it's full-blown is a much better prognosis than waiting till the disease is really advanced. Got it. Very interesting. And again, the technology is now posing new challenges to us which is a, all in all is a good thing, I think. So let me ask you also, you were talking about, and I may need your help on this one, uh, mosinituzumab in follicular lymphoma. Tell us more about it. Right. So mosinituzumab is called a bispecific antibody, for those who are not familiar with it. It basically, whereas CAR-T takes the T-cells and genetically engineers them, puts them back in the patient, and these T-cells will home on the tumor, What the bispecific antibodies do is it's an off-the-shelf therapy, which can allow, it's sort of a dumbbell, if you will, that it has a binding site to the T-cells and a binding site to the tumors. And so it acts as a bridge to bring the T-cells, which are capable of killing the tumors, right next to, in contact with the tumor cells. And when that happens, the T-cells are there and can kill the tumors, and it's quite effective. The response rate in relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma was outstanding, and the uh, complete response rate in relapsed refractory follicular was 54%, and the median progression-free survival was about 18 months. That's impressive. It is. The waterfall plot looks amazing with a high Mm -hmm. response rate. So it was impressive data. That was a wow. 
Yeah, I'm good. I'm glad because we've added more and more therapies, but it's still very difficult to turn the ship in terms of treating patients with very advanced disease after multiple lines of therapy. You talked some about BCMA-directed CAR-T therapy and myeloma. So tell us about that one. Right. So BCMA is highly expressed in multiple myeloma cells, and that's been used to direct T-cells to BCMA on myeloma cells. That's a so-called BCMA CAR-T. And of course, one is already approved and is definitely active in highly refractory relapsed myeloma patients. The second BCMA CAR-T is under review by the FDA, and I think we're going to get a decision, if I remember correctly, in March of 2022. That's cell. Siltacel also highly active. About 100 patients have been followed. Our overall response rate, 98%. Complete response rate, 80%. 92% of the patients are MRD negative. 18 months PFS at 66%. Pretty impressive. Wow, it sure is. And that looks, and I'll caution the audience to compare the different BCMAs, but I will say that the approved BCMA, Abecma, has a median PFS of about eight months. Siltacel now is out already 18 months and hasn't hit the median PFS yet. So that looks quite impressive. So that's autologous BCMA. In other words, you have to prepare from the patient. It takes about three weeks to do it if you can make the T cells, which typically happens. There are now multiple bispecific BCMA, and that's off the shelf. They also look impressive, and I hope I can get this right. It's a teclistamab, elrantamab, and uh, Regeneron 5438, all of these are bispecific BCMA by CD3 that will engage the T cells off the shelf. No more waiting to make the BCMA CAR T. Those are giving overall response rates of about 60, 70%, and we are waiting to see what the uh, durability of those bispecifics look like, but it looks impressive. So I want to drill down a little bit on this because, I mean, that it's very exciting. When you say off the shelf, tell us a little bit more because I want to make sure I'm understanding it like I think I am. Right. So off the shelf means that it's ready to go. This is an antibody that can be created by the pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. and mass produced, put in bottles, ready to go. So when the patient uh, needs it, you simply go to the pharmacy, collect the material and infuse it. Which is great. So you're saying instead of right now the production of those cells by culture and exposure to the antigen. Right. So what the CAR-T procedure is, in short, is harvest the T-cells from the patient. That's an autologous preparation. Genetically engineer in the lab to put the homing device on the T-cells, if you will. Grow those T-cells up. Do all the quality control to demonstrate that you haven't contaminated the T-cell supply, that it's, it's got all the specifications. Ship it back to where the patient is and infuse. That takes generally about three weeks. It can take even longer. And sometimes you cannot make the T-cells that you want because right. the patients have been, basically their T-cells are exhausted. Yeah, There is another solution and that is called allogeneic CAR T-cells. That also could be an off-the-shelf product. And for allogeneic Mm -hmm. means it's coming from a donor, so a healthy individual where the T-cells can be manufactured and all the genetic manipulation can be done, and the T-cells can be frozen down. And providing the patient's compatible, you just ship the material out and then infuse. That also looks promising, both allogeneic BCMA CAR-T and 
relapse refractory multi-myeloma patients is in progress, and the uh, overall response rate is in the 70% range. So it also looks doable. The whole allogeneic CAR-T approach is still maturing, so I think it's going to take a couple of years before we actually see one hit the market, if it is safe enough. So, I mean, I have to say, it's really exciting. When I look back, again, to ASH meetings a long time ago, and, and honestly, when I started my career, I mean, our therapy was Alcaran and prednisone, and the median survival was under two years. Right. And I have to say, I mean, just what an incredibly exciting journey it's been. And I want to express just thanks as a doctor, as a husband of a, you know, because my wife's had a blood cancer, but for everything that the scientist has done and for LLS too. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you guys for actually being in the field and and uh, getting these clinical trials done and demonstrating that it's safe and effective for patients and getting it out in the into the community setting. Very important. I just was listening to a bispecific antibody talk for myeloma, and uh, one of the first questions was, interesting, when is this going to actually be useful in the community? Because understand that we still have cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity that still can occur with these agents, both CAR-T and bispecifics. This is a a feature of engaging or hyper-engaging the immune system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we've learned how to deal with this stuff. There's less higher incident of CRS and so-called ICANS neurotoxicity. Um, But I think the community setting still has to learn how to deal with this. And we have to have a support system that in the event high-grade toxicity occurs, that there is a well-equipped emergency room that can deal with this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we talked about a few WOWs, CAR-Ts, some new therapy in multiple myeloma, and mosinotuzumab. Any other wows? I mean, the, you know, things that you look back and were particularly exciting. Well, before we leave that, I just wanted to, I think it's worthy to mention that there were three big presentations for CAR-T therapy as a first in patients with first-line failures. The so-called Zuma-7, Belinda, and Transform trial from three different manufacturers of CD19 CAR-Ts, and they went up against standard of care. Yeah, yeah. The bottom line is two of the trials were successful and improved event-free survival about eight to 10 months compared to the standard of care, which was two months. So that was pretty remarkable. Yep. The interesting thing is the third CAR-T approach was negative. So these are all CD19 CAR-Ts, no difference in terms of event-free survival, which was kind of surprising. And it probably has to do, it could be due due to a a whole variety of things. But um, one thing we learned that may be correlated is the preparation time for the trial that failed, the Belinda trial, was it took 52 days to prepare the CAR T cells, where the other ones took about three weeks, 21 days. So doing it fast is important. Of course, there were differences in the patient selection. There were differences in the preparation of the patients to receive the T-cells. So patients get a cocktail of fludarabine and another toxic agent to basically clear the patients to receive the CAR T-cells. Well, there were differences in the preparation. And there were also differences in bridging therapy. So as the patients are waiting for the CAR T-cells to be prepared, some of these patients required cytotoxic therapies to or therapy to control their disease as they're waiting for the CAR T cells. 
and there were differences in what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. So yes, first-line therapy is doable and maybe better than standard of care, with the caveats that all the, the, the comparison of the trials, there are differences, and these differences are in, probably going to be important. So by the way, I have to say that's a really good reminder. And in fact, hearing about those three trials together really is a reminder that there may be a host of other factors. The patient selected, the preparation, the supportive care, that all make a difference. So, right. yeah, so thank you for, yep. for sharing that. What else? I could talk a little bit about the polituzumab trial and a modified R-CHOP regimen. It's basically delete the oncovin. So I found that really interesting. Let me reflect back. There was a big, big, big study. This is over 15 years ago, but showing that, you know, in general, doing, you know, five, six, seven drug regimens was not better than CHOP. The big difference was our CHOP made a big difference. So, yeah, so what is this next step in treating diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Yeah, so basically this was a large trial comparing polituzumab, which is a uh, vedotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate, it's a CD79-directed antibody that's linked to an antimicrotubule agent, which has gotten approval in combination with bendamustine rituxan for relapse patients for lymphoma. Okay, so they took holotuzumab bendotin and combined that with RCHP, delete the O, the oncovine, and they did that for a reason. The polituzumab vedotin causes neurotoxicity. And as well as the uh, the the vincristin derivative, the, um, the the oncovin, that could also cause neurotoxicity. So they didn't want to yep. combine two neurotoxic agents, and so it's our chip, polituzumab vedotin, compared with our chop. Okay, compare a head to head, large trial, four hundred fifty patients per arm, well balanced. What comes out of it? So there is a small improvement in progression-free survival. At two years, the progression-free survival was 77% versus 73% of the patients with polituzumab or CHIP versus our CHOP. So there's a, a small improvement. There's no improvement, no difference in the overall survival. And so there were statements that polituzumab or CHIP is going to be the standard of care and will replace our CHOP. I don't have enough expertise to say whether it's going to replace it. And I think we've been down this road before with agents that don't improve overall survival, but have a progression-free survival advantage, albeit statistically significant, but rather small. Now, is that going to replace our CHOP? I don't know. And of course, there are issues about the financial impact of a new drug that's going to be expensive compared to our job. So these things have to get settled out in the community. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see at, you know, future ASH meetings and, you know, just nationally what the trends will be, adoption of, of some of these agents, which again, are unfortunately profoundly expensive. You know, I wanted to get your view. Uh, I know LLS has been very involved in research on targeted therapies, in especially in aggressive lymphomas. Were there any abstracts or presentations that you really found interesting at the meeting about that. Yeah, for targeted therapies, you know, I didn't really see anything that was really outstanding with the exception in terms of mantle cell, the non-covalent BTK inhibitor, what was formerly known as Loxo 305, I think that's what it was, now called pertubrutinib. 
So this is a non-covalent inhibitor of BTK in relapse refractory mantle cell. Overall response, 52%. Complete response, 25%. And this was, in some cases, failures on the covalent BTK inhibitors as well. For the audience who, who may not be familiar with covalent and non-covalent, the, the covalent inhibitors, in other words, the drug will bind chemically to BTK and remain attached to it. That's the abrutinib, the calabrutinib, the xanabrutinib, which are all approved mm -hmm. for, for mantle cell. This is now a non-covalent inhibitor for BTK that looks also effective. So we knew BTK is a target in lymphomas. In mantle cell, they have performed modestly. They're much better in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, but these non-covalent inhibitors look promising in uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Excellent. Lee, I want to talk for a few minutes about AML and about acute leukemia in general. And for so many years, it sort of felt like things were not changing. And now there's been such a, thankfully, such a wealth of new information and new treatments. So let me ask you about an older drug. It got more exciting, which is azacitidine. What was presented? Right. So azacitidine turns out to be old drug, but a focal point of combination therapy. And, and there's no question that AML, very difficult disease to treat, poor outcomes, particularly uh, for patients who are over 60, 70 years of age, uh, which is common. And cytarabine donorubicin has been sort of the typical treatment for AML for people who can tolerate it. However, elderly patients cannot. The so-called 7 plus 3 regimen, not a candidate. So what we've seen now is the very first step is combination of venetoclax and azacitidine in newly diagnosed patients is clearly an option and has really improved the outcome for these patients. There was a very nice presentation by uh, Dan Paliea of University of Colorado, where he actually, and, and by the way, venaza, so I, I call it venaza, venetoclax azacitidine combination is approved, where Dan Paliea actually broke it down in terms of patients who have TP53 mutations or not, and looked at the response rates with those wild type versus mutant patients. And uh, what he found is that actually the enhancement with VEN-AZA compared to AZA is particularly prominent in patients that have wild type TP53. So for example, the median overall survival is 23 months versus 11 months of the combination versus AZA alone in those patients, compared to the mutant patients where the improvement was really trivial, five months versus 4.8 months. Yeah, so it begin, yeah. to begin to sort of sort this out. In addition, azacitidine is now combined with, we have IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors. And Dr. DiNardo presented work on combination of IDH1 inhibitor with azacitidine. That also very effective combination in AML patients. And this is particularly important for patients who are newly diagnosed. That was a phase three trial also. That was a wow. Again, median overall survival, 24 months versus eight months with a uh, complete response rate of 47% versus 15%. Impressive data. You know, I just want to comment on that. It is so impressive when you look at almost essentially tripling the disease-free survival or, but I mean, these it's so unusual at the national meetings to hear presentations like that. And the one thing about the virtual meetings is you don't get that group uh, silence or that group uh, sort of you know, the, when they take a deep breath, but <laughs> but I do want to highlight it. Yeah. So, you know, we're beginning to see these drugs that 
got approved previously now be used in combination. You could easily anticipate yeah. it's going to be an IDH inhibitor combined with venetoclax and azacitidine. How is that going to work? And do yeah, those yeah. type of trials. We certainly have learned that already for C treatment of CLL. Venetoclax, obinutuzumab, a BTK inhibitor is almost becoming sort of standard fare. Yeah. And so combinations for, and of course for CLL, driving it to minimal residual disease, undetectable at the 10 to the minus six level with sensitive methods, impressive. Are we going to get there with AML? Are we going to get AML to really improve overall survival? We'll have to see. And clearly, we're going to see improvements in some patients. And then we're going to have to figure out why some patients are not responding well. And what do we do about right. those? You know, and what is the sequence of combinations that we're going to use? You know, we did this for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It took us 50 years to get it right in kids where 90% of these kids are going to get with BALL, going to get a high response rate and basically high long-term survival. I think we're going to see that in AML, but it's going to take a while to figure out yeah. how to do this right. I do want to mention oral azacitidine, a new drug okay. on the market. It is approved. So what we saw was uh, long-term data with oral azacitidine maintenance for patients that got into remission and were transplant ineligible. And the five-year data bears out that there really is a difference in overall survival. The survival curves don't overlap. So again, looks like maintenance therapy with an oral azacitidine is advantageous. The challenge is going to be, it's a new drug on the market. It's quite expensive. And you know how we're going to deal with a expensive drug that patients have to be on for years is going to be a challenge, especially for older patients who are now, let's say, on social security. What's the copay going to be and how is this going to be managed? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, and again, I, I may need some help on making sure I pronounce it right, but MLL menin, what is that? MLL menin is a, it's a fusion gene that ultimately controls the expression of genes that will drive leukemia. It's transcription factor control. So the DNA is basically just sitting there and these transcription factors bind to the DNA and either turns off or on genes in the DNA that will be read out to induce leukemia. That's basically the gist of it. And so if you can block MLL menin from turning on and turning off these leukemic genes, you should have a therapeutic effect. That's actually what we're seeing. Yeah, it's exciting. Even though there's been research on it for several years, but it was interesting to see it sort of uh, became more prominent and surfaced this year more. I should add, we're particularly proud of that because LLS funded the work of uh, Yolanta Grambeka, who's at University of Michigan, who developed the first MLL menin inhibitor. And blocking MLL menin or protein-protein interaction is very difficult to do with a small molecule. After about five years of funding her work, she demonstrated that it could be done. She made potent inhibitors. There are now two companies that have MLL menin inhibitors in the clinic, both Syndax and Cura, and we're seeing that it's safe and effective. It's very exciting, and it's really a culmination of about 10 to 15 years of work. Wow. Wow. That's wonderful. And finally, I wanted to ask you about, obviously, the topic on all of our minds pretty much all the time is COVID. And I know LLS presented some really interesting information on COVID. Can you fill us in on that? Sure. And this is what uh, I've been doing extensively for the last year. So when the COVID vaccines became available, you know, it's only been a year. It seems like yeah. a, a much longer time ago. But when the COVID vaccines became available, 
We in LLS became very concerned because we know that the history of response to vaccinations in patients who are immunosuppressed is typically not good. And so what we did is we were setting up a registry for patients. Patients could enter in that they got a vaccine, and we offered a free blood test to ask what is the antibody response to the vaccination. For those not familiar with COVID, so you're basically injecting through mRNAs or adenovirus, you're expressing a piece of the spike protein. Spike protein is on the surface of the virus, and it's the spike protein that interacts with the ACE2 receptors on human cells, and it allows the virus to enter the cells and basically take over. And if you can block that interaction with an antibody, it could be beneficial. That's the anti-spike antibody. So when the vaccine is given, the goal is to make the anti-spike antibodies in quantity and therefore block the ability of the virus to infect cells. Healthy patients, we know, can generate tremendous amounts of anti-spike antibodies. Unfortunately, for about 25% of the patients who get the initial two doses of the mRNA vaccine, and we started looking kind of in March when the mRNA vaccines first got approved, about 25% of the patients uh, who have blood cancer will fail to make antibodies, anti-spike antibodies. And what I mean fail to make it, non-detectable. So just to give you an impression of how big this difference is, the range in this particular assay we're using ranges from zero to 250 units per ml. Normal individuals make about 2,000, 2,500 units per ml. Patients who are not making any antibodies, non-detectable, we call that below 0.8 units per ml. So that's a way low amount of antibodies and it's insufficient for protection. Okay, so that was the initial vaccinations, and we looked at about 2,200 patients, all different types of blood cancers. And we know already that B-cell lymphomas by themselves can cause inability to produce antibodies. We also know that the treatments, including PTK inhibitors, CD19 CAR-T, and rituximab, or any anti-CD20, in other words, rituximab or obinutuzumab, will block the ability yeah. in many patients to produce anti-spike antibodies. Okay, so now roll it ahead to about July, and the boosters begun to be discussed. And in fact, the boosters, or I should say the third shots, and I'll tell you why in a second, the third shots were approved by the CDC in immunocompromised patients, and that includes blood cancer patients. We started looking at the response to third shots beginning in May, and we've continued to do this actually to this present day, but we collected data on 700 patients who got the third shot and asked, what is the response in terms of making anti-spike antibodies to the third mRNA vaccine? We were particularly interested in patients who had no response to the initial vaccine or had a low-level response, making low-level antibody. What did we find? Well, of the 245 patients out of the 700 that had no antibodies before the third vaccine, about 43% of those patients will now make antibodies. Okay, that's the good news. And they'll make a whole range of antibodies up from about one or two units per ml, not sufficient, but they're making antibodies all the way up to 2,500, max out the assays. The rest of those patients will still fail to make antibodies. That means that patients who got a third vaccine, a good chunk of the patients are going to fail to make antibodies and are walking around 
unprotected, yeah. at least in terms of ability to make antibodies. We do know that they can't, the T cells can be activating these patients. And we also know that there are patients who are so we call double negative. Don't make antibodies. T cells didn't respond either. And so those patients are vulnerable. Okay. Now, there were about 450 patients that were making antibodies at a, a whole range of antibodies before the third vaccine. After they get the third vaccination, a lot of those patients are going to make a very high levels of antibody. And I think Dr. Fauci has talked about this before, that patients who get the third vaccination will get a very large boost in terms of antibody production. That's important because the large of antibodies are going to be critically important in terms of protection against the Omicron variant. So we already know that there's about 30 mutations in the Omicron variant. The variant, there's a lot of mutations right in the place where the antibodies act to block the virus from interacting with the normal human cells. But if you have a lot of antibodies, they'll still compensate and block the ability of the Omicron variant to attack normal cells and decrease the incident of hospitalizations. And they're going to do this, of course, in blood cancer patients. So the message to blood cancer patients and physicians is all blood cancer patients, with just few exceptions, should get the third vaccination. It might increase the antibody levels. It will for a handful of patients. There are still going to be patients that will fail to make antibodies and have no protection in terms of anti-spike antibodies. Those patients are really worrisome because we don't want those. First of all, unless you check the anti-spike antibody levels, those patients could be walking around thinking they're vaccinated, got third shots, and they're fine. They're not. So blood cancer patients, particularly patients who have on active therapies with rituxan, BTK inhibitors, CD19, CAR-T therapies, those patients need to be really careful. There are many blood cancer patients, Hodgkin's lymphoma patients, even patients with leukemias who have survived the leukemia, they're going to have good responses. And so there are certain blood cancer patients that are going to do just fine. But without knowing what the anti-spike level antibody levels are, should be approaching the outside world with caution. Mask up, six feet apart, everybody in the family should be vaccinated. And if you're going to get together, ideally, everybody get a rapid test to find out whether they've been infected, particularly with Omicron, which is so transmissible at this point. Yeah. We're not done yet because the fourth vaccination is now indicated by the CDC in patients who are immunocompromised. They should get it six months after their third vaccination. And in light of the fact of how well some patients have gotten a big boost in anti-spike levels, blood cancer patients, particularly who are in active therapy or immunosuppressed, should get the fourth vaccination six months after they get the third vaccination. And we'll be following those patients as well through our LLS registry. I have to say that was a, actually such a great update and uh, with the science behind it. So thank you. This is really information I know I can use with my patients. So thank you. Thank you very much. I should add one final comment about COVID. So we are working with key physicians across the country in the UK. There are, and of course, uh, FDA just approved the oral pill for COVID today. And that's going to be an option for patients, particularly if they get infected, to get access to that pill quickly. That's one option. 
There are two monoclonal antibodies. One is approved, citrovimab, that is useful and is still useful for the Omicron variant. There's another antibody that is being evaluated by the FDA that may be useful as well. However, there are other antibodies, including the Regeneron antibody, that is, at least in the laboratory, highly ineffective against Omicron. So we have limited options at this point. Just to share with you, this actually began again in my practice, became relevant yesterday. A patient of mine with a history of a diffuse large B cell lymphoma and remission, just finished treatment relatively recently, but became infected, taking, you know, double vaccinated and did get treated with antibodies. So that treatment is available too. And it's exciting to note that a pill is now available as of today. So that's late breaking news. I'll say that, you know, the Regeneron antibody does work against the Delta variant. It does not work well, at least in the laboratory, against the Omicron. So, and I think there was data just today that 73% of the country is now Omicron variant. So I think the Delta variant, the curve is incredible. It's basically plummeting and Omicron is taking over. I think, you know, and by the, after the first of the year, we're looking at Omicron being the variant that people are going to be coming into the clinic with. Well, hopefully we'll do another ASH update a year from now. And boy, I hope we'll have different news. Well, more good news about blood cancers and more news about COVID hopefully being defeated. Defeated and over. (laughs) Yeah, we'd all love it. So I have to say, this has been a great episode. It's been so exciting. Uh, You know, when you first started talking about the meeting, I was thinking, boy, you know what? I mean, was it as exciting as as possible? The answer is, I think it was. I think you shared such exciting information about progress in myeloma and lymphoma and leukemia in early detection. So in that setting, I would like to thank, again, it's Dr. Lee Greenberger, who is the Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Lee, thanks again. A privilege to talk to you. Thank you. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. And for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. I want to encourage all of you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on a future episode. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.